Heavenly Father, we've gathered here this morning, and we know that if we are in Christ, it's by your grace alone. We know that the very faith that we have has been given to us by you, and the very truth of your glory and the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ has been imparted to us. It is our desire this morning to gather here and worship you, to see you as the great covenant keeper, to see you as the one who takes man so dark and so lost and makes us beautiful and glorious that we might be a people brought into your presence to worship you and serve you both now and forever. I ask, Lord, for your blessings upon our church this morning that we might see the great work of Jesus Christ, that we might see our own unrighteousness and the desperate need we have for Him to give it to us through the cross. I ask that you would show us that the vehicle you use is faith, faith alone. We pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters who have gathered in churches here in San Jose and throughout the world. We pray, Lord, for those pastors who will faithfully proclaim the gospel from their pulpits. And we ask that your word might go out Boldly go out, redeeming many, encouraging many, convicting many. Do that great work here. Do that great work in your churches throughout the world. We know, Father, that you are a God who rejoices in the redemption of lost souls. And so if there's any soul here this morning that does not know you, I ask that you would save them for your glory and your honor forever and ever. In Christ's holy name, amen. Good morning. I am thankful you're here. Uh, I believe this to be an appointed time by God, that He has gathered you here to this church at this time to hear His Word. And so if you are here, it is not by chance, and if it's not by chance, and there is a purpose, and if there is a purpose, then I want you to be fine-tuned to that. We live in a time, and most of you already know this, where truth has fallen on very difficult times. We have false teachers and false prophets in every arena of life, from medicine to politics to education to the media and in the church. I'm going to be talking to you today about the righteousness of God that He imputes to us. And I'm going to be talking to you today about the assurance that you have of salvation in Jesus Christ because of the covenant that God made for you. There are many churches here in the South Bay that will be preaching on the righteousness of man and not the righteousness of God. There are many pastors who will tell you that your assurance is in a profession of faith or a baptism or a church attendance. And I'm going to tell you your assurance is in the covenant that God made himself. And so I pray and have been praying that God will use this teaching from Genesis chapter 15 to bring us truth, a truth that will magnify his glory and magnify his love, for he is most worthy of it. If you have a Bible, please open up to Genesis 15 if you're not there already. Two weeks ago, we had a chance to look at the glory and the love of God magnified in His creating the heavens and the earth. Last week, we had a chance to look at the glory and love of God as He magnified Himself in the creating of us, male and female, in His image, and how He would work to bring about the restoration of fallen man who exchanged the image of God for the image of man. I want us this morning to be captivated rightly. I don't want you to sit here for the next 45 minutes and, and, and hear a man drone on and on. I want you to hear the word of God. I want your spirit to testify to these truths, and I want you to be taken by him. We're here to worship a living God. We had a chance to sing to the living God and pray to the living God and hear His Word uh, read to us. And so let us be about worship this morning. Let us be a people who are serious about coming into the presence of a thrice holy God and having Him transform us from the inside out. Don't, Don't you want to leave here different than when you came in? Don't you want to leave here knowing that you came into the presence of God and as a result you are now different? Your heart's a little softer. Your mind's a little sharper. The conviction on your sin is right. I pray that for myself, and I pray that for you. Moses said in Deuteronomy 7, 6, that God is doing all this work to create a people 
holy to the Lord, chosen for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Chosen. I want us to see this morning his infinite love and his unmatched glory revealed in just two ways this morning. I know for those of you who are used to my three-point sermons, this may throw you off. I pray not. Only two, but it won't be shorter. It won't be shorter. I want us to see his infinite love and his unmatched glory by one, his imputing his righteousness to sinners by faith. And number two, by establishing and keeping the covenant he made. The imputation of righteousness to sinners by faith and the keeping of the covenant that he himself made. So let's do that. Let's look at one, the giver of the righteousness, and let's look at two, the keeper of the covenant. The giver of righteousness and the keeper of the covenant. Point number one, the giver of righteousness. Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 starts off, says, after these things. One of the difficult parts of preaching expositionally in a topical fashion is having the right context by which we see this passage. And so I don't want to just bypass the historical nature of it, but I also can't spend too much time on it because I want to sit in verse 6 for a while. Abraham is in the land of Canaan. He just rescued his nephew Lot from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He just received the blessing in chapter 14 of Melchizedek. And then we have this incredible dialogue now taking place between Abram, Abraham, I will refer to him as Abraham, and the Lord. Look at verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. He's a homeless man in a foreign land, and God says to him, don't be afraid, I will be your shield, I will be the one who protects you. And I will be the one who blesses you immeasurably with a very great blessing. A blessing infinitely more than the bounty he did not receive, or at least did not keep, when he conquered the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So God promises him, he says, I will protect you and I will provide for you and for all your descendants. And if that is a true statement, how extraordinary that the creator of the universe would say that to any man. I will provide you protection, and I will provide you provision now and forever for you and all your descendants. It's an extraordinary statement. He had already made the promise back in Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 2. But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will, I'm sorry, and a member of my household will be my heir. No offspring, no heir to the promise made in 12. Years had passed from this original promise, and Abraham was still without a child, no one to inherit the very promises that God himself had made to Abraham. Back in chapter 12, God said, Go from your country to the land that I will show you, the land of Canaan in which he is, and I will make of you a great nation. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But without a biological heir, how would this come to pass? Abram and Sarah were not getting any younger, and they still had no children. Look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar of Damascus, His servant shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. A blood son, a biological son from the womb of Sarah. We know him to be Isaac, would be born, and he would be the son by which God would fulfill the covenant promise that had already been made. Look at verse 5. He brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's an amazing statement to make to an older man who had no children. Look to the stars. If you can count them, which he could not, your number, your descendants will be greater than the stars of heaven. And not only that, the promise was that the descendants of Abraham would bless all the families of the earth. Bringing, of course, we know the gospel of grace to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation that people across the globe might hear of the great work of Jesus Christ, repent, believe, and be saved. This was the promise that was made. Abraham, we are told in verse 6, 
believed the Lord. Look at verse 6. He believed the Lord and he counted it, God counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Abraham believed. He believed that God was going to fulfill the promise to protect him and provide for him. He believed that he was going to make his name great through Abraham, that Abraham would become a great nation, that they would in time come out of Egypt and they would take the land and they would live as a free people with God as their God and they being the people. He believed that God would fulfill the promise that from his seed, many nations, many families would be blessed. Abraham trusted in God to fulfill each and every promise God had made. In spite of all the circumstances, Abraham is in a foreign land. He has no land of his own. Abraham is older and so is Sarah. They have no children of their own. No son to carry the blessing. In spite of all that, he believed. He had faith. He trusted God. The character of God, the fidelity of God, and this, my beloved, is the beginning of the undoing of the curse that came upon mankind through Adam and Eve, as we looked at two weeks ago. Where Adam and Eve did not trust in God, and they suffered the consequences of sin and death, they did not believe that God would protect them and provide for them. Abraham did. Abraham trusted with a childlike faith that God would do the things that God said He was going to do and bless Abraham and the world through Christ as he said he was going to do. And what was the product of this faith? It was righteousness. It is righteousness that comes as a result of faith. You may hear that and you say, that, that doesn't sound like the, a very good gift. It is the great blessing. Because without righteousness, we cannot come into the presence of God. Without righteousness, we cannot have Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so God here says, through your faith, I will bring to you, I will put upon you my righteousness. When God came to Abraham, do not make this mistake, Abraham was a pagan worshiper. He was a pagan idolater. Abraham was a man who was dead in his sins and transgressions. Abraham was unjust. Abraham was unrighteous. There was nothing good in Abraham. God did not look upon Abraham and say, there's a man I can, I can work with. Abraham, like every man, was dead and faithless when God came to him. But by grace, verse 6 again, Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. That word counted, it's an accounting term. It was reckoned to him. It was considered to him. In other words, Abraham, who was dead in his sins through his faith, is now made alive. And now God looks upon him as a righteous man, as a just man, as a man who can come into the presence of a thrice holy God and not be put to death. Through faith, God considered Abraham as righteous. Not a righteousness of his own, but a forgiveness now that is given. In other words, God refused, God sovereignly refused to look upon Abraham and Find his sins worthy of death. Psalm 32, 2. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Blessed is that man when God looks upon you and does not count your sins against you. My beloved, this understanding of you having a righteousness from God that comes through faith is at the very heart of the gospel of grace. The very heart of it. In fact, I would argue that if you do not understand your righteousness as a result of faith given to you by grace through Jesus Christ, that you cannot know Christ. You cannot be saved if you think there was some means other than God's grace through faith making you righteous. There can be no way that you can know Christ if you think somehow it was by your works or by your birthright or by going to church or being baptized. The very heart of the gospel rests upon this imputation of righteousness by God to sinners like you, like me. Abraham did nothing to earn God's blessing. He did nothing to work his way into God's graces. Abraham, like all mankind born in sin, has nothing to offer. We can't go to God and negotiate. We can't barter with God, here's my sin, here's my goodness, let's try to work this out. Abraham simply believed the Lord. 
He trusted in the character and nature of this God who had made these promises. He trusted that God would be faithful to His promises because of who God is. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, What was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Listen to this, Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, through faith, God imputes to Abraham mercy and grace. God brings to him the mercy that pardons his sin, and he brings to him the grace that imparts righteousness to him. And so now Abraham standing before a holy God is not the same. Abraham is looked on by God as being a just man, even though he's still a sinner. In spite of all of his failings, and Abraham had many, in spite of the fact that he lacked faith in verse 2 just moments before, God says to him, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide for you. I will be your shield and I will give you a very great blessing. And he says, but God, how's that going to happen? He's faithless in verse 2 and now he's counted righteous in verse 6. Now to the Jews, righteousness implied perfect obedience to the law of God. But this is before the law was given. This is before Moses. This is before the Ten Commandments. So we're preceding a works-based thought in our coming into God's good graces. We're talking about a time when Abraham heard from God and simply trusted, and God said, because of your faith, it will be the equivalent of legal righteousness. In other words, because Abraham simply believed, God looked upon him as being a righteous man. Not perfectly obedient to law because he was not and not in perfect alignment with the will of God in character and behavior because he was not. He was still a sinner, but now what? What's the difference? He was saved by grace. He was a man now that had received a gift from God, a gift of righteousness that came directly from heaven and was placed upon him. And when now God looked upon Abraham, he looked at a righteous man. In other words, he accepted him and he forgave him. This is the righteousness, my beloved, we all need. This is the righteousness that you so desire. This is the great gift that enables you to commune with God through Jesus Christ by faith. And the question I had for this incredible teaching of the imputation of righteousness, the giving of righteousness by God to sinners like us, a question I have is why did God need to impute the standing to us? Why did he need to impute righteousness to Abraham? And why did he use faith as the vehicle of that gift? Why not? Why not good works? Why not a religious exercise? Why couldn't we just bring people in, dunk them in the water of baptism, and now they have the righteousness of God? Why must he use faith? God had to give Abraham the standing of being righteous before him because Abraham had no righteous standing of his own. He had nothing to bring before God. He had nothing to offer. He was a man like all of us before Jesus Christ, completely dead, utterly sinful, darkness through and through. This was the standing of Abraham before God came to him. He stood before God east of Eden, just like his parents Adam and Eve, alienated, Colossians 1.21, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. If you have this perception that Abraham was this glorious, God-loving, God-worshipping man when God came to him, you need to go back and read pre-Genesis 12. Abraham was a sinner. Abraham needed the righteousness of God being given to him by God that he might live. This is so hard for some of us to believe. I know that, and I'm talking about in the context of Reformed evangelical circles. So hard for us to believe. We profess that someone is saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We profess that, and yet how much of our lives actually model a works-based salvation? How How many of you still do things thinking, this will make God happy, and therefore I will be secure in my salvation? How many of us still engage in behaviors, thinking to ourselves, sometimes I sin and sometimes I don't sin, but God is so gracious and God is so compassionate and so forgiving and He's all those things 
that, that I'll, I'll take the grace and the righteousness from, from Jesus Christ because I need that, but I, I think I'm doing something here too that is worthy of being saved. I think that, that my life is okay. I mean, there are others that are better and there are others that are far worse, but my life is, my life's good enough to come into the presence of God. No one would admit that because that's horrible theology. And you say, well, that's not what the Bible says. But how many of our lives actually model that? Our functional Savior is not Jesus Christ. It's not a righteousness that must come from God and be given to us. It is, deep down for many, the sense of, I'm not that bad. Certainly not deserving of hell. And God is gracious. We know what the Bible says. And I would argue you know what your heart testifies. You know that apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that your just desert is eternal condemnation. Your heart tells you that. The Bible tells us that. We know otherwise. And you don't have to be very old to come into the presence of a holy God today, like in an Isaiah 6 moment, you would say as well, I am a sinful man from a people with sinful lips, woe to me. But why by faith? If if we have to have righteousness that comes from God, why faith? Faith's hard, right? Faith is a hard thing. Being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Why couldn't he make it church attendance? If he did, this place would be packed, would it not? Every church in this country would be full if it was church attendance. Why couldn't it be reading your Bible? Why couldn't it be putting a little money in the offering basket? And why couldn't it be baptism? I mean, that's a a once in the water, out of the water, and I'm good to go. Why faith? First, I believe that if we are created in the purpose, for the purpose of bringing God glory as image bearers as we saw two weeks ago, if your whole life Every word, every thought, every action is to bring God glory. If that is the very purpose of you being created, and I think we established that well, then obtaining our eternal salvation by anything we do, any work we do, any religious exercise we do, would bring glory to ourselves. And it would nullify the very purpose of your being. It would be counterproductive for God to have His righteousness be given to you by any other means than faith. For if it were, you would boast. I would boast. Would we not? Would we not boast if we said, I am saved because I made the decision to be saved? Would we not boast if we said, I am saved because I came from a family of believers? Or I am saved because I went to this school? Or I am saved because I make this amount of money? We would take the credit And the very purpose of your being created in the image of God to bring Him honor and glory would be nullified in that horrible work. Righteousness must come by faith alone. And that faith comes when God makes you alive. You have no faith when you're dead. God makes you alive. And what does He do? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that a man cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So you're born again and you see the kingdom and you see Christ and you believe. And God gives you a new heart to believe. And you have new desires now. Desires that are in line with Christ. And and all your life then becomes one of a pursuit of knowing Christ and serving Him and loving Him. And you begin to realize that even the faith that you have, even your believing and your profession of faith is a gift from God. That that wasn't conjured up inside your will or your heart or your mind. You will believe with all your heart that it's by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Secondly, I believe that our righteousness must come by faith because Adam and Eve's great sin was a sin of faithlessness. It was a sin of faithlessness. They did not trust, listen closely, they did not trust that God would be their protector and their provider. They did not trust that God actually had their best interests in mind in creating them and putting them in the garden and telling them not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They did not believe God. Satan said to Eve, if you eat from the tree, you will not surely die, calling God a liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, listen to this, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Satan comes into this perfect creation 
and he speaks lies into the ears of Adam and Eve. And he says to them, you know what God's doing, don't you? He's holding you back. He's preventing you from being the people that you actually can be. He doesn't want your best interest. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be fulfilled. He knows, he knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him. He knows that if you eat from that tree, you will be truly satisfied in your soul. And so he's keeping you in a state of suspense. Satan was saying to them, God does not desire what is best for you. We're told in verse 6 of Genesis 3 that when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In other words, they believed the lie. They bought the lie. They had the truth of God. They had the presence of God. They had the word of God. And then Satan comes in and they listened to Satan and they thought to themselves, we are better off if we reject God. We are better off if we don't listen to what He has to say. In other words, before they ever physically sinned, before they ever took from that tree and ate from that tree, they had already committed the sin of faithlessness. They had transferred their faith from God and they had put it into their, their faith into the lies of Satan himself. They no longer believed God. They no longer believed God's word. They no longer trusted, and this is key, they no longer trusted that God truly had their best interests in mind. And so they ate, and they surely did die, and all their descendants after them, including us, including us. Faithlessness, my beloved, is the undergirding of every sin we commit. Every sin you commit, underneath that, there is faithlessness a refusal to hear God and His Word. Every time we eat from the tree, the forbidden tree, every time we lie to our spouse, every time we cheat on our taxes, every time we lust in our hearts for a member of the opposite sex, every time we commit murder in our minds through our anger, any time we know the Word of God and willfully disobey it, every single time, we are taking our trust away from God and away from His Word, and we are putting our trust in the lies of Satan every single time. We are saying in that moment, God, you do not know what is best for me. You must say that. You must believe that in order to sin. Because God is saying, this is how I created you. This is how you are to live. This is my word for you. Do not eat from that tree. And you say, oh, no, no. You do not know what's best for me. What is best for me at this moment is to eat this piece of pie that has 2,000 calories in it. God. I'm not going to share the gospel with the lost. I'm not. It's hard. People get mad at me. I am going to watch those things you tell me not to watch. And I'm going to listen to those things you tell me not to listen to. Because you tell me not to because you don't want me to be happy. You don't know what's best for me. I'm going to spend my free time not serving you. Because when I serve you, there's sacrifice. And there's suffering. And there's pain. And it involves people. And people are hard. So I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to go inside my house. I'm going to lock my doors. I'm going to watch television. I'm going to play video games. I'm going to spend my entire life on the internet. The creature says to the creator, I don't believe you know what is best for me every time we sin. Every time we sin, faith is guided or misguided by a promise a promise that we have received or heard either from God or from the world, God or Satan. Satan promised Adam and Eve this. He says, I, Satan promised life, you will not die. Revelation, your eyes will be open. He, Satan promised them godliness, you will be like God. He promised them knowledge, knowing of good and evil. That's what Satan promised Adam and Eve, and they believed and they died. God promised Abraham protection. He says, I'll be your shield. He promised him provision. He says, from, from Sarah's womb, your heir will come. I will bring your descendants into this land. 
this promised land. And I will bless them, and I will multiply them, and they will go out to the ends of the earth, and I will bless the families of the earth. Two faiths, both based upon promises, radically different outcomes. Adam and Eve trusted the lies. They trusted the father of lies. And as a result, it brought sin and death to them, and it brought sin and death into God's very good creation. But, we're told, Romans 4.18, against all hope, listen to this, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, like all who by faith believe, put his trust, childlike trust, implicit trust in God. He said, God, I have no idea how you're going to do this. I have no idea how you're going to bring a baby from a womb as old as Sarah's. I have no idea how you're going to multiply us and bring us into, make us a great nation and bring us out of Egypt and into this promised land. And I have no idea how you're going to take my descendants and spread them throughout the earth and bless every tribe and tongue and nation through this great heir who we know to be Jesus Christ. But he believed anyway. All the circumstantial evidence argued against belief, and yet Abraham believed, and it was credited to him righteousness, life, salvation, and eternity with God. My beloved, I want you to ask yourselves now, what promises have you based your life on? Your faith is based upon a promise or multiple promises. What promises have you based your life on? Are they the promises of God or the promises of Satan? Are they the promises of the true, faithful creator or the father of lies who came to steal and kill and destroy? This is no small question. Your faith is based upon promises that you have heard. And that faith will determine whether or not you know life now and for eternity or you are still dead in your sins and will be dead for eternity. For some of you, and I say this in love, your functional Savior, the one in whom you have trusted, is not God. It's not God. Some of you, your functional Savior the one in whom you have put your faith, the promises that you have trusted. It's not from the word of God and it's not God himself. For some of you, it is your family. Some of you worship your family. Some of you worship your children and your grandchildren. For some of you, you put your faith in your financial security. Some of you have put your faith in your health, in your retirement. Some of you who have made professions and you've been baptized and you go to church and you read your Bible and you know Christ, but you do not know Christ because your faith is not in Him alone. You have a righteousness of another kind that it comes from this world and you credit it to yourself and you say, I am a good mom or I am a good employee or I am a good church member and therefore God will be pleased. Rather than saying what? I am nothing apart from Christ. I came into this world dead and I will leave this world dead unless God makes me alive, unless God takes his righteousness through the cross by faith and presses it upon me to impute it upon me to make me the person that I cannot be apart from God. I know your hearts and you know this too. That apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes by faith, we have no hope I have no hope if I wake up on any morning and think that this day will be a good day and I will work really hard to please God and if I live a good day, he'll be satisfied with me that I have fooled myself and I have bought into the lies of Satan. Whatever it is that you've taken your faith and put it in, whatever promise that you've received other than that that comes by God through his word, you can be sure of this. The end is the same. That storyline is the same. And we can go all the way back to the very beginning and see how Adam and Eve acted, where they put their faith, 
not in God, but in Satan, and it was sin and death. The storyline always ends the same. It's not like Satan said. It's not life. It is death. Your eyes aren't going to be opened, as he said. Your eyes will be blinded. You will see nothing. You will not be like God if you put your faith in anything other than the hope of Christ. You will be cast out of his presence forever. These lies that were sown in the pit of hell and exposed to Adam and Eve permeate us today. You say, well, you know, I've never gone so far as to eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet we have every time we sin. Every time you sin, you say, no, God, you do not know what's best. I do. You make yourself Lord. So first, I pray we see that the righteousness we require to come into and dwell in the presence of this holy God must be given to us by God through faith. It's the only way. It's why it's one of the solas. Sola fide, faith alone, faith alone. No works, no religion, no exercise, no ceremony, no church attendance. Faith alone. Amen? Still with me? So the question I have is, how how does God do this? This is a holy God. This is a just God. This is a God of infinite righteousness. How does this God take the righteousness of Jesus Christ and then put it on a man as sinful as Abraham? How can he do that and remain just? How can God do that? And remain righteous. Because if God just freely gives out righteousness to anybody and everybody, then he cannot be considered a just God. Because my just desert for my sin, the wages of my sin, that is death. That's eternal condemnation. And yet you're telling me this God is going to give freely his righteousness through faith? How do the scriptures rectify this? Because this is a significant problem. If God just gives righteousness without holding sin accountable, then he is an unrighteous God, and I would be the first to tell you, you need to go do something else. We don't want to worship this God. But if God imparts his righteousness to sinful man and still punishes sin, then we want to see that. We want to see how does a God do that? How does our God do that? Second point, the keeper of the covenant. Look at verse 7. God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abraham here, let's be gracious. Abraham here, he's very much like the father who comes to Christ with the the demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9. The man comes to Christ and says, if you can do anything, he's speaking to Christ, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, he said, all things are possible for those who what? For those who believe, for those who have faith. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said this, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. This is where Abraham is. This is Abraham's plea. We were just told in verse 6 that the righteousness of God was imputed to Abraham because Abraham believed. And now Abraham is saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's saying, I I believe you. I believe you're going to bring a son from Sarah. I believe you're going to make a great nation here in this land. I believe that that my descendants will bless the, the nations of the world and all the families will be blessed through this great Savior that will come. I believe all this. Now help me believe. Increase my faith because even Abraham, the father of faith, needed God to increase his faith. That's reassuring for me because I struggle a lot. God said to him, look at verse 9. God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And many of you might be saying, that is a very strange answer. That is a very strange answer to Abraham asking God to increase his faith. And he says, bring me all these animals, and let's cut them in half and lay them in two rows. It wasn't strange to Abraham, though. He knew exactly what God was doing. 
Abraham brought the cow, the goat, and the ram, and according to Near Eastern covenant tradition, listen now, he would sacrifice that animal, cut it in half, and lay two perfectly even rows. Half the animal on one side, half the animal on the other side. And then the tradition was that the two parties making the covenant would walk through this sacrificial, bloody, gruesome mess together. And they would do so invoking a like fate upon themselves if they were to violate the covenant. In other words, they're saying, we're going to walk through this, and they're going to see the animals, and they're going to see the dismemberment, they're going to see the guts, and they're going to see the blood, and they're saying, if I violate this covenant, so shall I be, my blood, my flesh. Today, we give our word, we shake hands, a lot of us today, we sign contracts, and we put our name on it. The magnitude of this was life. It was blood. It was the sacrifice of one's life. It was a somber, bloody, gruesome sight, and it was fit for this covenant because this covenant, the magnitude of such, would impact all of creation. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I will give this land, this promised land. To your offspring, through your son, I promise to make you a great nation. Verse 17 is a theophany. A theophany is a visible revelation of God in the form of fire and smoke. Now, this is early in the testimony, but you know, you say, oh, fire and smoke. God shows up a lot like that. He showed up on Mount Sinai like that, did he not? Exodus 19, 18. Mount Sinai was covered with what? With smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Fire, smoke, God's presence. We know this during the entire 40 years of the wilderness. The Lord went before the Israelites by a a pillar of day, I'm sorry, Exodus 13, 21, by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So we have this striking representation of the immediate presence of God through fire and smoke here in this covenant. That's striking to me. But what's even more striking is that God is the only one who passes through it. That would have been odd because in the covenant made in the Near Eastern tradition, both parties would pass through the sacrificed animals. And yet Abraham is not allowed to participate. Why would God have Abraham sit on the side? Why would God not bring him in and say, listen, here's the deal. You don't live in accordance with my government, then you will die. Why didn't God do that? God knows us. He knows our infidelity. He knows that we, we, we would make a covenant like that, and within five minutes, we would break that covenant. He knows us. But more importantly, this covenant made to Abraham to make him a mighty nation and have an heir come from his loins that would be the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. This covenant to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's bloodline would be taken and accomplished by the Lord himself. In other words, he's saying, I will guarantee this covenant. I'm going to make the covenant. I'm going to walk the sacrificed animals. And by my life, I will make sure it comes to pass, Abraham. It is a most glorious manifestation of the Lord's grace. So glorious. When he promises to care for this loyal servant and the descendants of this loyal servant to bless us today. This does not mean that it abolishes Abraham's responsibility to remain faithful. Two more chapters down in Genesis chapter 17, there's a covenant and conditions established on circumcision. But what it does mean and reveal to us is this, that even though the children of God will be disloyal to God, even though we will continue to rebel against God, even though in our saved states we will continue to sin as Abraham did until the day he was glorified before God, He says, I, God says, I will keep my covenant. Regardless of how bad things get. Regardless of how rebellious you become, God says, I will keep my covenant. This is the great assurance 
that sinners saved by grace have. And you must have it. Because if your assurance is in anything that you have done, going back to the previous point, if you think your righteousness is a product of something you have done, then when you mess that up, you will doubt your salvation. And if it's in your own works, you should. The great assurance that we have as, being, as sinners saved by grace is that God promised to fulfill the covenant. He made the promise. That's why Jesus is able to say in John 3, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus speaking on behalf of the Father, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. We talk about the, uh, the preservation of the saints, the assurance of your salvation in the context of the covenant that God made. I cannot tell you that you will be saved because you were baptized. I cannot say to you that your assurance of salvation is sure because you profess Christ. I can tell you this. If by faith you have received the righteousness of God, then your assurance is safe because God made a covenant that he will not break. He made a covenant he cannot break. You say, well, how do I know that? Isaiah 48, 11, God refuses for his name. He refuses for his glory to be taken by anybody else. Listen to what he said to the prophet Isaiah. For my own sake, this is God speaking, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let my name be defiled? I will not yield my glory to another. That's a faith you can stand on, my beloved. That's a faith that will enable you to get up on a Monday morning after having a really bad Sunday and knowing you're going into your work week or your work day still covered with sin and still struggling. Say, my hope is on this God who will not yield his glory to another. And he promised me. He will never let me go. I believe I have a childlike faith and therefore I have the righteousness of God even though I still live as an unrighteous man. But my faith's in Christ. My faith is in a covenant promise that God made that he cannot because of his own character and nature and because he desires his glory above all else. He says, I will not give it to anyone. It is probable, and many of the commentators mention this, that when God passed through those sacrifices as fire, he consumed them. And so they didn't remain dead flesh. He came and he consumed the sacrifice that was made. It was cut up and offered by Abraham. And so we find so early, we're in Genesis 15, 15 chapters into the Bible, and what do we see? We see propitiation. We see a need for the atonement of sin. Propitiation, you say, what is that? We see this need for a sacrifice to be made on our behalf before God. We see someone needing to stand in our place and pay for our sins that we might not perish but have life. We see this in Genesis 15. The gospel is so steeped here. It's amazing we miss it. It's amazing we don't preach more on it. Fiery pots, smoke, flesh. It's fantastic. 2,000 years from this moment, this covenant made between God and Abraham, Jesus Christ shows up. And he says, I will fulfill it. 2,000 years after the cow and the goat and the ram are slaughtered, the Lamb of God shows up. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, who comes to take away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, would come, and He would be offered up by man, would He not? Turned over by man, crucified upon a cross, and God would consume Him, and He was consumed. His broken body, His spilled blood, consumed by the holy wrath of God that He might pay for our sins, that He might pay for your sins. God made an oath that He would keep the covenant, that He would bless Abraham, and that His descendants would bless the nations, that from Abraham would come the Savior, would come the Lamb of God. He made that oath. He kept that oath. Grievously, it took the death of his son. This is an extraordinary thought. God made the oath with Abraham. God kept the oath, and God still died. 
See, now, I thought that if he keeps the oath, he doesn't have to die. In order to keep the oath, he had to die. Because he can't save you, and he can't save me, and he couldn't save Abraham and remain just unless someone paid for those sins. The entire picture of substitutionary atonement becomes laser-focused for us here. Jesus Christ had to die. Listen, for God to remain just and God to remain righteous, Jesus Christ had to die if God was going to save even one man. God can't just pass over sin. He can't just turn his eye. He's a just God. He must judge every sin. He must judge every sin with the condemnation of hell. He must. And so what we have here is at the very heart of the gospel, God the Father punishing his son Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who had no sin, so that sinners like us who believe on him, who through faith in Christ receive forgiveness and righteousness instead. It is such a glorious teaching. I do not know why we don't tell more people. This is the hope of man. This is the hope of all those in your life, all your friends and your coworkers and your family members who you see week after week who have no faith in God and there have no righteousness imputed to them. This is their hope. That this covenant promise that God made to Abraham and that was fulfilled upon the cross is real. This is truth. Not some lie or, or mythology or some story Christians talk about. This is truth. That Jesus Christ did in fact die. And that anyone, everyone who puts their trust in him, who has a childlike faith and says, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand how it all works, but I believe you. I believe you. I trust you. And I will put my life into your hands. I will come and commit my life to Jesus Christ. I believe that he died upon the cross and I believe that he paid for my sins and therefore I believe that I am forgiven. And I believe that you have, in some fantastic spiritual sense, imputed your righteousness upon me. And now I stand, even though still a sinner, holy before your eyes. I believe that. And so must you. The only way that Abraham could be considered or counted as righteous before a holy God through faith is because of the death of Jesus Christ. You know that. You say, well, that didn't happen until 2,000 years later. Abraham believed on Christ. We believe on Christ. Abraham looked forward. We look back. And we all look to the consummation of the coming of God in glory. Jesus Christ paid for Abraham's sins. So Abraham was forgiven. Jesus Christ imparted his righteousness to Abraham. So Abraham was counted righteous before God. And then God affirms this covenant by walking through the crucified, the sacrificed flesh, calling Abraham into a covenant relationship, into a sweet, abiding love relationship with himself. And then Christ does that for all of us. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. The Holy Spirit reveals this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so he does. You are children of Abraham. You say, I'm not Jewish. You are actually in the spiritual sense. You are a child of Abraham if you know Jesus Christ. Because Abraham was a man of faith. If you are a man of faith or a woman of faith in the true living God, then you have received the same righteousness that was imputed to Abraham, and therefore you're standing right now, even in the midst of your daily sin, even in the midst of your current struggles, you're standing right now before God is holy. You say, that's, that's almost impossible for me to imagine. I know my heart. I know my heart. Only by faith, only by trusting in the character of God and the great work of Christ can this be true. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you have the righteousness that comes through faith, 
then you know it was not by blood, not by your biological blood, but the blood of Christ. You know, my beloved, that this great work that took place upon you to make you a a child of God was a work of God's grace. Paul says in Galatians 3, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Do you have faith? Saving faith then you're a child of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It becomes that simple. And I want you to leave here with that simple, basic understanding. By God's grace, through faith, you're saved. And then stand your entire life on that, on the work of Jesus Christ. And the righteousness that was given to you by faith. Man of faith. Woman of faith. Child of faith. I know I'm long. I'm sorry. Here and I only did two points. Really quickly, listen. There's a result from this. If you have believed. If you've forsaken the lies of Satan. If, you, if your faith is based upon the promises of God the word of God, and the work of Christ. It should result in your life, in cultivating in you certain things. And I'll I'll give you four quickly. Number one, it should make us a humble people. It should make us a humble people. If, If all the righteousness we have comes from God, then what do you have to boast about? If all the righteousness we have was imputed to us by Christ through faith, then what are you bragging about? What, what, why, what pride do you have? What does your pride have to stand on? If the righteousness comes from Christ, then the only thing that we can boast in is the cross. It is the work of our Lord. It is the free gift that comes to barren souls. The Apostle Paul said rightly in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My beloved, if you're having a good day in the Lord, and and your, your meditations are right in the Lord, and you find yourself serving God faithfully, and you're spending time in prayer, and you're being fed by the word, and you are blessing others in love and service and sacrifice, at the end of the day, you think, what a day. Praise God. Because that righteousness is not of your own. It is an alien righteousness. It was given to you as a great gift. So praise the gift giver for it. Amen? Humility, number two. If these truths are true and they are embraced then our love and obedience to Christ, listen, it must increase. It is not optional. If you have rejected the lies of Satan and you have embraced the truth of the righteousness you have through faith, then your love and your obedience for Jesus Christ, it must increase. It cannot stay the same. As you see daily through the word and through prayer the great immeasurable sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross for you, you stand in awe of the willingness of God the Father to send His Son into this sin-drenched world that He might perish to give us life, to buy us back. It cannot not cultivate in you a deep, abiding love for Him. It does that work. The righteousness given to you by faith cultivates deep Love, deep affection for Jesus Christ. And that that will lend itself to obedience. Your desires will become His desires. Your passions will become His passions. 2 John 1, 6, And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. Number three, these truths are real. If they are real, how righteous the Savior must have been how righteous the Savior must be. If this is real, if through the Lord's death and resurrection, He is not only able to pay for our sins, but simultaneously, listen, impart to us the righteousness of God so that we sinners saved by grace will one day come into the presence of a holy God and stand in the righteousness of Christ. How righteous is this man 
millions upon millions of people who will be saved by grace will have the, uh, the righteousness of God to come into his presence, not only to stand before the judgment seat and not, not be killed, but be saved, but to enjoy the presence of God forever. How righteous is this Savior? What type of righteousness are we talking about? The righteousness of God, the purity of God, the holiness of God given to you. Last one, believing these truths over the lies of the evil one will produce in you a great assurance of your salvation in Christ. And many of you need it. So many of you still struggle. And you think, today was a bad day. Maybe God doesn't love me. Lies. Today was a good day. Maybe God does love me. Lies. He doesn't love you because you're good or bad. He loves you because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And he loves his son. The covenant that God made with Abraham cannot be broken. If you are a child of Abraham, because you believe that covenant cannot be broken, you cannot be lost. Some of you need to hear this because some of you are in dark times right now. Some of you are in a really dark time right now. And your thinking may be deceived by the evil one. He may be tempting you to take from that tree because he's saying to you, if you take from it, you'll see. If you take from it, you'll have life. If you engage in that sin, then it will be better for you. Do not listen to him. Hear the words of God. He promised to deliver you from yourself. Your destiny is secure. If you, by faith, stand in the righteousness of God right now, then that same righteousness will be applied to you, counted to you, when you stand before him on the great day of judgment. Paul tells us in Romans 4, the words it was credited to him, speaking of Abraham, were written not for Abraham alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. My beloved, are you a child of Abraham? Are you? Have you received a righteous accounting of your soul before a living God by faith? That's a simple question. If not, if you say no, I have placed my faith in other things, I have placed my hope on other promises, then this morning I beseech you in the name of Christ, cry out for mercy. Confess your sins to this holy God and ask him, beg him, and do not stop. Say, give me that faith. Make me a believer. He has never, ever said no to someone who's come before him and sought mercy and grace from the cross of his son. Never. And he won't to you. So if you hear this and there's desperation in your heart, I praise God for that. If you hear this and you are convicted of your sin and you know that you cannot come before him as you are, then cry out for mercy. And if you do know this mercy and this grace, then know that you stand on it by faith alone. That it was the Holy Spirit who came to you and made you alive. It was the Holy Spirit who caused you to believe. It was the Holy Spirit who gave you the faith to receive the righteousness to come before God as a son or daughter. It is by faith that you believe that God will fulfill his promise to forgive you of your sins, to impute to you the righteousness of Christ to deliver you from the grave. And it is by faith that you believe he will bring you into his presence, into his home forever, that you might know him and enjoy him and worship him forever and ever. Amen? All right. I'm going to ask God right now, like Abraham, that he will increase our faith, that he would make us, the members here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, a people of great faith. What a work he can do through a people like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that apart from the faith that you give us and the grace that comes to the cross, we, we are no different than Abraham. 
We are idolaters. We are pagan worshipers. We are sinners through and through. I ask, Lord, for your grace and mercy to be poured out here at Cambrian Park, that you would impute to us the righteousness of Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the desire, equip us with the ability to live in accordance with that righteousness, Lord. We want to be a holy people. We want to be that people set apart for your own glory. We want to be that royal priesthood that you have chosen out of all the people of the earth as a great treasure. Father, enable us to see that, please. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of our sin, enable us to see clearly the righteousness that we now have in Jesus. And then cause us, compel us, press us into that holy life. Father, I I am so thankful that you gave us this gift. I am so thankful that you gave it through faith that we might not boast in our own works, but boast in Christ. And I, I am so thankful for myself and my brothers and sisters here and throughout the world that you made a covenant yourself that you will not break. And you won't break it because you won't forsake your own glory. These truths, Lord, are magnificent. These are true. Align our lives with them, I pray, that you might be glorified each and every day. In Christ's holy name, amen.